I want to wish you all a very good morning. Isn't it beautiful? We've had a week of drying weather, and now all the seeds in the ground, and there's a gentle rain. Isn't that great? We brought our dry cows out to pasture this week, and that is always a highlight for me. I love seeing dry cows on pasture. Looks colorful, and there's lots of grass. So God is good, as always. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we are back into 1 Timothy after uh, spending some time in Acts last week for our baptism service, which also coincided with Pentecost was last week Sunday, uh, and so Acts 2 was a fitting passage there, but we are back now into uh, 1 Timothy 6. So if you want to turn there, we're going to look at 1 through 10 today, and once you've got that in your Bible, then I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of our God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching, that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And may God bless the reading of his word, and you can be seated. So, to recap where we were in 1 Timothy, last time we were in this book, we were looking at uh, honoring different types of people. Uh, We looked at honoring widows, how the church is to honor widows. Uh, And then last time, we looked at honoring church elders, the responsibility of church elders, as well as the honor that is owed uh, to them. And Paul's continuing this theme of honoring different people as he begins this chapter with how to honor uh, masters, those above us. And as we'll see, this connects closely with contemporary relationships between employers and employees. So just because the language is different doesn't mean there's not an immediate application for us. There is. And we read in uh, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, it says, Let all those who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And I think passages like this uh, are easy to skim over because they kind of cut against a grain of the world we live in. Uh, Possibly, your Bible uses the word slave instead of bondservant. But in either instance, we have instructions here uh, for masters and those who are under them, which certainly cuts against the grain of our own cultural sensibilities in this day and age. Uh, And so it's not hard to just kind of skim over this without uh, getting into it. But I think uh, it's worth spending a bit of time here so we think like Christians when we run into passages uh, that cut against our own grain. The word that's used here is the word doulos, which strictly translated would be a slave. Uh, And the word doula is actually closely related to this, right? A doula is a, uh, a lady who helps another woman through childbirth. Uh, it's rooted in this word as well. But however we translate it, as I said, the the concept of having a master over us uh, doesn't seem to fit well. Uh, Many people in our time feel uncomfortable with the topic of slavery or with people being bondservants, uh, which is why we want to skim over some of these things. But I think that approach of skimming over without really looking into some of these things leaves us 
exposed. It leaves a, an open spot in our armor. It leaves a kind of a soft spot for the world to attack the biblical vision for life. Because we're essentially admitting there's something here we don't really want to deal with. There's something in the Bible that makes us really, really uncomfortable on uh, this issue of slaves and masters. So when we do this, we forego an opportunity to master the content, the history, and the worldview that the Bible presents itself with. And we establish a pattern of letting the world set the moral temperature of how we are going to handle certain things. And so it usually goes something like this. Um, A Christian is put on the defensive because, you know, someone will say, well, the Bible talks about, you know, slaves and masters, and it doesn't outright condemn it. Uh, So we have now evolved to a higher moral plane than the Bible did, right? And so the Christian is put on the defensive about the biblical vision. Because there seems to be agreement among Christians and those who are criticizing the Christian worldview uh, that somehow we have elevated morality above the Bible and therefore the Bible also has to move on certain other things. And this play is run over and over and over again. It's been run with feminism. uh, It's been run with the redefinition of marriage. It's currently being run with with gender issues. Uh, And it starts when we leave a spot open, when we leave a spot exposed and we start to take a defensive position on the Bible rather than uh, happily going where this text takes us. Okay, so if we take some kind of approach that says, well, yeah, the Bible may say that, but nowadays we all agree uh, that slavery is wrong, uh, we are conceding that ground. And saying that slavery is wrong, depending on what is meant by it, as we're going to see, could be a very good statement or it could be a misleading one. If we, if we do leave the impression that the Bible is wrong on this issue and the culture has now corrected the church, we have opened up that dam at a certain spot and it should not be surprising to us uh, if those who are opposed to Christianity will want to put more stuff through that crack in the dam as they are in fact doing. So we should never take out, well, that was then and this is now approach to the Bible. We never give away the store. you've probably heard me say this before, but our goal as Christians is to never have any part of the Bible that we apologize for. We don't want to apologize for anything in the Bible. If the Bible says it, it's the word of God, it's good. Our task is to understand it as good as possible, not to start making concessions and apologies for it. And so texts like this actually provide us with an apologetic opportunity, not apologetic as in, I'm sorry the Bible says that, but apologetics as in making a defense for uh, a full-orbed Christian worldview that touches on everything. Uh, and this, this leads us to this concept, and we've talked about this lots at Men's Night, of this concept of public theology. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's kind of a ditch on either side when we think about how does Christianity interact with the world as a whole. Uh, one, I, I think, unhealthy approach is this culture war approach, which seems to have this notion that if we just get the right people in power, everything will turn out okay without doing the work of transforming people's hearts and minds. But there's an alternate ditch on the other side of the road uh, that is common to those of us who, like me, have a low German last name, and we're taught to just be the Stille im Land, right? Just be the quiet in the land. The, you know, the, the world will just do what it'll do, and it's just going to get worse. Uh, and so our job is to just be quiet and, and uh, not think about those kinds of things. Just stay home on the farm and work. And I think both of those come with real danger spots. And I think uh, thinking down a middle road, public theology, thinking that the Bible has something to say about everything in life. There's a full worldview that the Bible presents itself with. uh, and, And being able to do this unashamedly in public to see, well, the Bible says this about that and this about that. It, it avoids the trap of thinking that we can just do this by force without people's hearts and minds being transformed by the gospel, or that the Bible has nothing to say about anything outside the church, and so we just retreat into our smaller and smaller little ghetto called the church. So, great, but we still have a text here that talks somewhat favorably about slaves and masters. And you're probably thinking like me, and correctly, I would say. But, but didn't we, you know, Charles was here a few weeks ago, Charles De Silva, and he talked about William Wilberforce and his, his work to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. And he was a Christian man, kind of with a Puritan view. Wasn't he doing the right kind of thing? And yes, of course he was. And the reason this becomes a difficult or emotional topic for many of us, 
and why I think a little bit more biblical tough-mindedness could be in order here, uh, is because when people in our time, in our culture, hear the word slavery, we think of a very, very narrow slice of reality. Our minds tend to go back to the 18th and 19th century in the American South. Uh, And that's just automatically where it goes because that's the image that, that we've grown up with. And so we're probably all very familiar with the abuse and the mistreatment that happens when people are treated like someone else's private property. But there's also many things to show how narrow our conception even of this time is. There's also many things from this era that we didn't learn about. Um, so even in the, uh, in the proper quest to abolish that form of slavery, something we probably didn't learn about in our school history class was that when these slave ships showed up from North America and Britain and Africa, it's not like they had to go round people up. They were already for sale in the shipyards by other tribes. <laughs> okay? So it, it shows that skin color isn't the only test of uh, the fact that people tend to hate each other. We tend to mistreat each other if the gospel has nothing to say. One tribe would conquer another tribe, they bring them to the shipyards and sell them uh, because then their problem is gone. You maybe also didn't learn that the English word slave actually comes from uh, the Slavic people in Eastern Europe because they were also shipped off as slaves into the Middle East. So slavery isn't something that's unique to one period of history. In a fallen world where people mistreat each other, uh, where people are cruel to each other, the world's history is a history of war and enslaving people, mistreating people, uh, and it ends poorly. Perhaps one of the most interesting and counterintuitive things about the the little vision of slavery that we tend to think about is uh, when it really took on this very destructive form uh, where there was this legal recognition that one person could own another person had to do with a court case in Virginia in 1655 where a farmhand by the name of uh, John Kaser finished off his contract at one farm uh, of a man named Anthony Johnson and he went to go work for another farmer Uh, named Robert Parker. And Anthony Johnson was not happy about losing his farmhand, and so he went to court over John Kaser, and the court awarded John Kaser to Anthony Johnson for life. The court essentially said, you can own another person for life. And that set the legal precedent for the kind of slavery that we think about, this ungodly ruling that one man can own another man into perpetuity. It was a terrible ruling. It was an ungodly ruling. And it was a legal first, and it established what we now conceive about of slavery on this continent. The counterintuitive part of the story is that Anthony Johnson, who won that court case, was a black man from Angola. Okay? So the first slaveholder in North America was a black man. Okay? We don't tend to think about all these things. And again, this is just to point out not just historical data, but the fact that we we have to examine what do we just assume about certain words or certain topics uh, without any further reflection. The point is to show that we have a very narrow frame of reference when we think about slavery. We do think of Georgia in 1820, and and for good reason. We're familiar with the movies and the books from that era, uh, and so it's natural that that would uh, come into mind. But there's more to it than this. Nobody, of course, in a biblical vision, should be forced into labor because of their skin color or where they come from. And nobody has the right to treat somebody else like personal property. What a denial of the image of God on someone to say, I can own somebody like I can own a cow or a dog. That is an ungodly conception. And yet it happened. Why did it happen? Okay, so the practice that we think of If you're like me, and this is what comes to mind, is a brutal and wicked form of denying the image of God in all people. And perhaps most importantly, when we think about this as Christians, right? So uh, the the charge is often, well, yeah, but that's what happens when Christians run the world. You know, the the American South was Christian, and this was allowed to happen in the American South. Uh, And I would say that actually happened because of a denial of the biblical worldview, not as a result of it. And what do I mean? Well... If you go back in your Old Testament, you'll see what the Bible says about that form of slavery. In Exodus 21.16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Interesting. The Bible itself says that kidnapping someone and selling them like property is a capital crime. That's how serious this is to deny the image of God in another person. 
In Deuteronomy 24.7, it says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So again, biblical information that tells us this is an ungodly practice uh, that needed to come to an end. And even here in our own uh, series that we've been working through in First Timothy, you see at the beginning of the book, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 10, where it talks about different uh, kinds of sin that present themselves in an ungodly world, it talks about the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, enslaving is the kind of sin that's serious enough it gets lumped in with homosexuality and perjury. It's a serious deal to enslave other people. So what do we do with all this? Because there's other points where the Bible never condemns slavery. And again, the point here is to to think bigger about this. Think more than just our own little slice of history. The kind of slavery which stole people bought and sold them like property, worked them half to death with no end to sight, end in sight was always sinful and wrong and brutal. And this kind of slavery has been around since the very beginning of time. You can read about it in the Old Testament. One, one nation, one clan conquers another and they bring them in in handcuffs to serve as slaves. This is, a new, or this is not at all a new thing. And it was not invented by Christians or by Westerners, like some would have us believe, This is just the history of the world. It's filled with war and of slaving other people. What's unique about the Christian West, the Christian worldview, is that we were the first culture to abolish that practice. That's what is unique about the Christian uh, worldview as it took public form in the West, is that we successfully abolished that practice, first in Great Britain uh, and then in North America. But that's not what's in view when the Bible speaks positively about slave and master relationships as it does in several places like here. Slavery in the biblical conception is just a a practice of indenturing yourself or contracting yourself to somebody else in the form of debt payment. And if you think back, if you were Jacob and you're interested in Laban's farm, there was no royal bank or Steinbeck Credit Union to go come up with the funds to buy that farm and then pay it back over time. In in essence, the the previous owner becomes the debt holder, and you indenture yourself to that person as a slave or as a bondservant until you have paid your debt off to them. This was also used if you were found guilty of a crime. Uh, This is how uh, you made restitution with someone, is that you would work for them until your debt was paid off. So this was a form of debt payment in the ancient world. And so strictly defined in the positive sense, biblical slavery is simply the practice of somebody else benefiting from your work before you do. Someone else enjoys the first fruits of your work. And employers hire employees because of the value of the employee's productivity, and it's greater than what he is forced to pay the employee, and therefore it makes sense for me to hire someone to enjoy their labor. I pay them a wage, uh, and this is how things work. This is how work happens, and this isn't a bad thing. Another example of how this works in our own time is that many of us will have a mortgage that we pay on, right? And before you enjoy money for yourself on entertainment or anything else, you pay off your mortgage, okay? Someone else is getting the first fruits of your labor, and that's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with the fact that Steinbeck Credit Union gets to enjoy my milk check before I do. That's how it works, okay? There's there's nothing wrong with the fact that they are, in that sense, a master over me. The same thing happens with our taxes, right? We want roads, we want police, we want courts, we want uh, things that don't happen for free, and so we pay taxes. That's also the first fruit out of our paychecks, and this isn't bad. This is just life uh, as it works. So these are biblical concepts that are pretty basic, and they serve as a foundation for making the world work according to God's design. But it's worth thinking through because these very basic concepts have been the object of much criticism in our times. And if we think the Bible has nothing to say for this or we don't understand what the Bible does or doesn't mean when it talks about these things, again, we fail to see the lordship of Christ in all areas of life. So we need to think about this stuff like Christians all the way down. The teaching in these opening verses is just that, or just like we are to honor widows and we are to honor those who serve in the church, Now we're told that slaves or bondservants are to honor their masters in the same way. 
And so in our terminology, the word employer or employee would best describe this relationship, but the application is the exact same. We are to honor those whom we are working for, those whom we are serving. And the reason we do this, it says, is that the name of God will not be reviled. And and we saw this on another place that's not popular in our time when we're talking about men and women and and how uh, Eve was deceived first and then Adam. We see the parallel passage in Titus 2, verse 5, says that uh, when it presents kind of traditional gender roles, it says, do this so that the word of God may not be reviled. Right? And we think while we're living so counterculturally, we're going to have a poor testimony if we live so different than the rest of the world. But Paul says to Titus, no, it's the exact opposite. If you live like the world, then the word of God is reviled. The way that you don't revile the word of God is to live according to a biblical principle. And here we have it again. When the world is telling us that it's unjust, uh, that someone has lots and someone else is working for him, the Bible says, no, serve happily so that the word of God will not be reviled. It cuts the, exactly the opposite of what we might think otherwise. If you want to have a good testimony, live different than the world. Don't just go along with uh, every latest fad. So it's interesting that this warning about not reviling God's name or his teaching comes on these, what are today, controversial issues. It would be easy to say that as Christians we should just be quiet about these things, just keep the peace so that we can have a good testimony with the world, so that the word of God will not be reviled. But again, we're told directly it goes the other way. Do these things so that the word of God won't be reviled. You revile it by compromise. For the Christian, our different way of doing things may very well be one of the things that, uh, and probably many of you have experienced this, where you live a Christian life, you're, you're doing something that's kind of countercultural, that doesn't fit with what's popular in society at any given time, people look at you kind of two ways, right? They'll look at you like, how bizarre, this is weird. They might even be a little bit angry on the surface, but deep down, they're fascinated by it, right? Deep down, they're fascinated by it. And I can say that in our own marriage, where we live by what I uh, think is, is kind of traditional biblical patterns for forming a family. It's nothing radical in my mind. Uh, I've got people in my own extended family who look at it simultaneously with contempt and disgust and are fascinated by it and drawn to it at the same time. Okay? And it's an interesting thing how that works, but it really does work this way. Think of even in Jesus' own ministry. The same people looked at him with disgust and contempt, and yet they were drawn to him and fascinated by him in some weird way just because of how different he was from other men. And as Christians, I think our lives will frequently be that way. There will be on the outer surface, there will be contempt and disgust, but there may very well be fascination and kind of a magnetic attraction to, yeah, I know, deep down I really know that is how the world actually works. And so don't be discouraged if people don't totally understand it all at once. So again here, the instruction is that we are to be respectful and to be productive no matter what. And verse 2 points out that we are to do this all the more if our master is a believer. So that means if we're working and and our work is helping to make him wealthier, and he's a Christian, that's great. Because uh, more wealth, more assets, more productivity is flowing into the kingdom of God. So there's nothing wrong if your boss benefits from your work. This isn't an injustice. This is how God has made the world to work. And, again, in our age, what's it common to do? It's common to complain about the boss, right? Here I am, breaking my back, just making, you know, the boss man rich or whatever else. And, of course, there is uh, a mandate on an employer, on a boss, to treat people fairly, to treat them with dignity, to pay them fairly, and all that. But there's no injustice if he's also benefiting from it. Why else would he give you a job if he didn't benefit from it? Okay, and, again, this is biblical teaching. If If your master is a believer... Work all the more joyful. And don't be resentful if he gains from it. You're also gaining because you're making money working for him. You're getting something in exchange for that uh, agreement. But there's also another application we can make in our business arrangements. It's not uncommon for church people to always hope for some kind of a discount when we're dealing with a believer, right? Uh, A while back, Rob Harder came and he fixed our overhead door in our feed room. And it would be very easy to think, well, you know, Rob's a Christian. I'm a Christian. We're brothers. Um... I should get a discount, right? Isn't that, isn't that how it works? I should get a discount because we're believers, we're in the same church. Uh, but why wouldn't it go the other way? Why wouldn't Rob say, 
you know, me and Matt are both believers. We're part of the same church. I should charge him 30% extra. I mean, after all, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a believer, right? Why would we assume that our bank account is more important than the bank account of the person we're dealing with? Why do we assume that as a customer, I should get a discount from a Christian? He's put work and he's put effort and he's put hard work into establishing his business. Why is my bank account more important than his, right? We need to treat each other fairly, even in the household of God. So there's an application even outside of the employer-employee relationship. When we do business with each other, as Christians, we should be fair with each other. We should actually not be resentful if the person we're doing business with is making money. That's good. That's good. They're making money. They're, they're building a business. They're working for the glory of God. And so let's uh, delight in that rather than uh, trying to work them down. And, and I've had that, and I've found it very distasteful where someone has... I, in my perspective, really ground me on a deal with the farm, and they're really trying to ground me, and then it always comes back. It's, so, well, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm interested in kingdom building. The more money I make, the more I can build God's kingdom. Okay, great, you do that <laughs> with your money. Okay? Don't try to take advantage of me so that you can sound pious with your stuff. Let's deal fairly with each other so that this is fair for everybody. But whatever the exact arrangement. The principle here is that in a good working arrangement, everyone is able to benefit. So I might value your piece of pie more than I value the five dollars in my pocket. Great. This is how God made the world to work around. Or maybe I value someone's job offer at a certain wage more than I value my free time. Great. Now I have a job. I have employment. This is how this works. And these arrangements are all trade-offs that we make that should be in the interest of both parties and so if someone else benefits from our service or our work, uh, again, this is a source of joy for us. This should not be a source of resentment. Never. This text teaches the exact opposite of resentment. And then moving on in verses two, the second part of verse 2 through verse 5, it says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And how many times have we encountered now in this series in 1 Timothy uh, where Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things, right? We see this over and over and over again. Teach these things. So this isn't just so that Timothy can accumulate knowledge in his head uh, and just store it up it's so that he can turn around and teach it uh, to those who are in uh, the church that he is shepherding. He's to teach and to urge. So the heart is also involved. Uh, emotions are involved. Our desires are brought in uh, to this. So it's not just teaching for academic knowledge. It's also urging in a moral sense that our hearts are involved in this. So in the case of what we just saw about working relationships, we don't just do our work so we can get to the weekend. Right? We're not just working for the weekend. We do our work with joy if we understand that work is the way God cares for his creation. Right? He, and, and think about this. We get so used to it, but think of how creative God is. Isn't it amazing that almost at all times there's roughly the right amount of farmers and truck drivers and salespeople and everything and things just work? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Isn't that incredible? That God's that creative? That he gets everyone in the right place, so a whole economy with hundreds of millions of people, that that can work? Right? Because no one comes out of their mother's womb with a tag that says truck driver. Okay, well, I guess it's got to be, right? People get there on their own. But isn't that remarkable? Everything works. Right? We have the right amount of teachers, uh, everything. Plumbers, electricians. It's, in, it's incredible that God has the wisdom to take care of his creation through all these occupations, through all this work. And, and we should never just take it for granted because we're used to it working. This is the way God provides for his creation. This is the way the world goes around, is by getting people to do productive work. And, and productive work is one of the chief ways that we love our neighbor. Right? Martin Luther, uh, when he was talking about Christian vocation, he was saying, what, what I don't mean by this is that every pair of shoes that the shoemaker makes, he gets a little cross put on it. That's not Christian work. That's just a logo, right? Christian work is seeing that you are serving your neighbor. You're loving your neighbor. And so he said, when a young girl goes out and milks the cow, it's as though God himself is getting milk to other people's tables. That's how God has, has built work into society. Work is good. 
And we shouldn't be surprised that the, the more productive work we do, the more we're benefiting somebody else, that there's a financial reward for those who are most benefiting society. So in an age which says we should be resentful about somebody else's success, uh, the biblical vision would say, no, that may very well be a sign that they are loving their neighbors well. Their neighbors are putting a value on the service that they are providing. This is something uh, that God is to be glorified in, not something that is to be the source of resentment. But the emphasis shifts quickly in verse 3, so that we're ending this book. We're going back to much the same place that we started, and that is with the concern about sound teaching in the face of false teachers. The church is always to be on the lookout for different doctrine when it starts making the rounds. And here in the case of the Ephesian church, the different doctrine, as we've already looked at it a number of times, was something called Gnosticism. And this was the religion of don't touch, don't taste, don't drink, uh, don't do anything uh, that's too earthy, that's too involved in the physical world. And in each of these cases, Paul has refuted the Gnostics by showing how the Christian vision is different on every single point. They say, don't eat that food. Paul says, eat it with thanksgiving in your heart. God provided it for you. Be thankful. Eat it to the glory of God. Okay? Uh, the Gnostics say, well, don't, don't spend any time on your body because you're just, you know, the body is material, it's corrupt, it's just going into the ground and staying there anyway. Uh, when Paul talks about the resurrection of that same body, and then he says, no, train your body, it's good. It is some, some value to train your body, to stay healthy. Okay? They're saying, forsake marriage abstinence, celibacy, that's the way out. Uh, and the Christian worldview says, well, God may call some to celibacy, sure, but otherwise, go ahead, start a family to the glory of God. God loves families, okay? And last time we saw where they say, you know, again, one of these things, don't touch, kind of like red meat, was, you know, if you're really pious, uh, don't take any red wine. Uh, and Paul tells Timothy, no, for the sake of your stomach, you're sick, this might be good for you, take it to the glory of God, don't sin in it, uh, but again, this is something God's provided you with, so do it for the sake of your health. And now he's showing that the Christian work ethic is another one of those things which is going to stand in, uh, in, in contradiction to the false teachers. The false teachers are trying to get rich quick by promoting a religion which, ironically, denies creation and denies work, whereas the apostles are teaching Christians to work diligently in a world and to be content with however God is pleased to bless them. The doctrine with the, which the apostles are teaching agrees with the sound words of Jesus and results in godliness. The doctrine which the false teachers are peddling is puffing everybody up with some kind of secret knowledge and with conceit, even though they don't really have any true understanding. So instead of real-life, practical, godly living that the Christians are encouraging, the false teachers are noted for, and it says here in their text, for their controversies, their quarrels, their envy, their dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. Now, which church do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of a church with fruitful, productive, hardworking, grateful Christians who serve each other through their work and through their service? Or do you want to be in a group that's known for controversy, quarrel, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. And I think the choice is pretty obvious. All of these things that Paul has just described to Timothy are symptoms of self-indulgent living. And isn't it ironic that the people who are teaching, uh, you know, remove yourself from everything in the world are using that false religion to try to get rich quick? Isn't that kind of ironic, right? How, I want to get rich quick by denying the kinds of things that God has connected to money, Right? Uh, how to get rich quick? Well, buy my book, for one, of course, is always the thing, right? I always found that interesting on these infomercials. You know, the, the get rich quick guy, well, yeah, it works good for you because you're selling a book of nonsense for 30 bucks a copy. And if enough naive people buy it, you will get rich quick. That's the get rich quick scheme. Uh, the Bible doesn't know anything about getting rich quick. It knows about God providing for us through the work of our hands, through us loving our neighbor in service. And we see, just like in any other area of life, getting deeper into ourselves can never satisfy. The God of self is a cruel master. Right? And have you ever noticed, here's another ironic observation about the world. We all know people who are looking for happiness, right? I'm on the quest for happiness. How many of those people are ever happy? Pretty much none of them. Right? What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If you, if you make your life about secondary things... Not only do you miss the big things, you miss the secondary things. 
I think it was C.S. Lewis who points out, aim, aim for the next world, aim for the glory of God, and you'll find not only do you get that, but everything else is thrown in first. That's, that's Lewis's way of paraphrasing what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. If you start taking these other things and making them first, you miss out on everything. You miss out on the big thing and on the small thing that you're looking for. And so this isn't as though God doesn't want us to be happy. Of course he wants us to be happy. It's just that we can't find our happiness apart from him. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world of those who dwell therein. So it's to be expected that if people are looking for happiness by trying to escape from the world that God had created, trying to escape from the image bearers that God has put around us, it makes sense that that quest for happiness will never yield true happiness. So the Gnostics are trying to get away from stuff, and the Christians are saying the stuff is fine as long as we're using it for the glory of God. As long as the glory of God is our true north, is the the place on the compass that we're heading towards, the stuff itself is fine seen in its proper light. And in our own time, teaching about stuff can take on two almost opposite forms, right? And I've said this already, that often... Uh, danger comes in two opposite extremes. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. And so on the one side, we might well be aware of the prosperity gospel. And this is the gospel that promises that if you live well, if you're faithful, things will just go good for you. You're going to be rich. Uh, Your wife will be 26 for the rest of your life. You're going to have white teeth. It's all going to work out great. And of course, that's a lie. That's not true. The prosperity gospel goes in the opposite direction of Gnosticism. And it says that, you know, that, that we can be envious or we can, we can expect every material blessing right now. And so it's easy for us to see how the prosperity gospel and people wrapped up in it are depraved in mind of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And these men fly around in their private jets and in their custom suits going to the poorest of the poor, right? And it, sometimes even to very poor places in Africa, and they'll promise, if you, give my, if you give money to my ministry, your pigs won't die. Your cows will get fat. Your wife won't miscarry. Give me money. And they go back on their private jet, having just defrauded the poorest of the poor of the poor. And I think that should rightly make us angry in a righteous sense. It's a perversion. The gospel is not a means of gain that way. But then there's an opposite problem that is probably just as popular in our day, and that is kind of a poverty gospel. And this gospel says that uh, it's it's not good to have stuff, uh, and so this stirs up envy and dissension in a different way. And this one is closer to the Gnostic heresy that would have been present in the church in uh, in Ephesus. This is the kind of Marxist thought that is popular in our time. And, And Marxist thought essentially just says... Any unevenness in creation is wicked. If somebody has more than you, they must be a crook, and it has to be leveled. It has to be evened out. Or if there's certain advantages that come with being male, that has to be uh, erased. Or if there's certain advantages with being a female, that must be erased. Okay? It's trying to level everything and ruin all distinctions in creation. And at the root of that, uh, envy and at the root of all of that is envy and dissension. If somebody has something I don't have, it has to be given to me or has to be destroyed altogether. And this is the psychology of vandalism. If I can't enjoy something, uh, then I don't want to see somebody else enjoy it, so I'll just destroy it. That's what vandalism is. And people who vandalize stuff maybe don't even know uh, what they're doing, but they're essentially saying, I, I'm, I'm so full of envy and so full of resentment towards my neighbor that I don't want him to enjoy something if I can't have it, so I'll destroy it myself. And both of these approaches, whether it's the, the, the prosperity gospel that, uh, that wants everything now, or whether it's the poverty gospel that's fueled by envy and wanting your neighbor's stuff, both of them are the enemy of true Christian contentment. Both approaches destroy the way that God has connected work, godly living, and meeting our needs. And people without a gospel of reconciliation through the blood of Jesus are always going to be at war against creation. They're always going to be trying to get something for nothing. If the God of the Bible isn't the one we serve, we do turn inward to ourselves, and we pay the ugly price for it. And this is true on both the personal and on a global scale. 
There is no peace and there is no end of striving. But contrast this again with the vision that Paul has laid out for the Christian. And see it again in verses 6 through 10 as we keep moving on here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so we're brought back to a simple gospel of Christian contentment. Great gain for a Christian isn't measured by how much money we have or how much of our neighbor's stuff we can vote out of their wallet and into ours. Our great gain is godliness with contentment. God wrote the book of history, and so ultimately it's in his hands if we live in prosperous times or in poor times. Whether we face poverty or wealth is ultimately in God's hands, and we need to be content with whatever he has uh, written up for our days. So our job, if we are to be contented Christians, is to not be proud when we are blessed with wealth, right? And many of us are. If, you're, if you are in this room, you are living at a time where almost assuredly you are in the wealthiest 5% of people who have ever existed, okay? And it's easy for us to want to take credit for that. As the saying goes, you know, born on third base thinking you hit a triple, that's us, okay? We were born benefiting the fruit of what our great-grandparents built up. We don't get credit for it. The fact that I was born when and where I was, I get zero credit for. But, but what do we do? We tend to become proud. Okay? And really, it's other people who have gone before us that have, through their godly living, through their discipline, have created this for us. And now we are benefiting from it, but simultaneously destroying it with our pride, destroying it with our envy, destroying it with our lust, so that what we give our heirs will not be blessing, but cursing. And we need to turn that around. We need to take a more humble attitude again. It has sometimes been said that I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. And this verse is frequently used in reference to achieving life goals or winning a sports event. But I want to show that it's not. Let's look at a parallel verse that, that often we're familiar with. In Philippians 4, 11 through 14, it says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So if you read Paul in context here, this verse is not about, you know, uh, increasing your net worth to a million dollars by age 50, or running a marathon in a certain time. It's not about that. It's about ministering and persevering whether there's lots or whether there's little, whether there's abundance or whether there's hunger. And that's the thrust here in this passage as well. While the false teachers are trying to entice us with the false promises of a prosperity gospel or the false piety of the resentment that comes from some kind of Marxist social justice gospel, the real gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that true contentment is tied to godliness and not to a particular outcome. We may be reminded again of Jesus' words that he cares even for the sparrows. Right down to the hair on our head is numbered. And we can be content with him providing us the food and the clothing that we need. And we may sometimes find out that we actually need a lot less than we thought we needed because we've become accustomed to it. There's a story of an uh, elderly uh, widow in France in World War II who was trying to feed her family. And it was a real struggle in a war zone, of course. And finally, one day, she was blessed with a loaf of bread. And she looked before her children and her grandchildren, and she broke that loaf of bread. She said, all this and Jesus too, we are so rich. We are so blessed. Right? We got a loaf of bread and Jesus too. What more could we possibly want? That is Christian contentment. That's what we need to shoot for. One day we'll all die, and so for all of us, at least some of the necessities of life are going to be taken from us at this point, but that isn't God withholding this promise to take care of us. It's his way of graduating us to the next level, to our eternal rest. And so George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, is correct when he says that we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Okay? Until that point, you are immortal. Uh, once your work is done, those things are taken, but that doesn't mean 
uh, life in that final sense is taken. It just means we are graduated on to glory. And the point being that even if we aren't rich in a monetary sense, God will give us what we need for as long as we need because he has written the days that we have on this earth. And even that is according to his detailed care for his creation. And so verse 7 shows that death is, in fact, a great equalizer. We all had enough to live while we were on this earth, but our empty hands at birth and our empty hands at death remind us that God is Lord. And so all the energy spent trying to build our empires, building our wealth, come to an end in death anyway. And this is true of the rich man and the poor man. So why don't we focus on things which will last, which will go on ahead of us into eternity? Being content with God's provision is again set alongside the alternative in verse 9, where the person is described uh, who destroys himself because of his desire to be rich. Again, putting secondary things first, and it destroys us. And notice that this verse doesn't say that being rich is wrong. Okay? There's many righteous men in the Bible who are rich. Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Okay? There's, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. What's wrong is desiring wealth, consuming yourself on attaining something that is clearly, in the biblical conception, secondary. Okay? The problem here is the desire, the consumption with this. So the person who desires to become rich is discontent with the life that God has given him. And this person has turned inward and is consumed by harmful desires which are going to ruin and destroy him. And verse 10 is often frequently misquoted as, as this. Money is the root of all evil. Who's heard that? Money is the root of all evil, right? Is that what it says? That's not what it says. That's not what it, at all what it says. It says that the love of money is the problem and that it's not the root of all evil but all kinds of evil. Those who are motivated by a desire to be rich tend to stop at nothing to fulfill their desires and this seems to be what was happening with the false teachers in Ephesus. They were consumed with their uh, financial benefit and that's why they were peddling false doctrine because it gave them an advantage. It helped them to stand out from the crowd and it was financially lucrative for them. And so Paul says in verse 10 that this craving for wealth, that it's for this reason, their, their desire for wealth, that they wandered away from the faith and ended up harming themselves. And this is the warning about the love of money. Uh, and this can take different shapes for all of us. And we all need to be aware of how we are tempted by this in our own personal circumstance. How might I be loving money? What kinds of evil am I uh, potentially guilty of if I am making money my God? It's not a happy road to be on. It might be easy, us, easy for us to look over and see the prosperity gospel preachers who are unashamed in asking for money and for preying on weak and vulnerable people like vultures. But this can also take a surprising and clever turn when it looks like it's consumed with the exact opposite, right? Where taking the poverty gospel route uh, can be just as you know, personally ambitious, uh, trying to get ourselves an advantage as the prosperity preacher. The social gospelers also have this problem. It appears merciful and gracious on the surface, but the whole project is about envy and covetousness, right? Well, the rich man, it's not fair that Elon Musk has so much money. Some of it belongs to me. Well, why? 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 Think about that. Why? What did you do to these? Well, maybe he inherited it. So what? It's still not yours. Okay? It's still not yours. Uh, money is connected to work according to the biblical conception and to be envious and covetous of other people who have more than us uh, is, is just as much a violation in, in this passage right? and, and we're, we're treating our poverty as though it's uh, almost righteous because at least we're not like the rich man but isn't it ironic if he gave me all his wealth I'd become the very thing I detest right? if, if being poor is righteous why would we want to, with charity, make anyone middle class? Because now they've become one of the unrighteous people. Okay? This is backwards. What God has given you, be content with. Okay? So we, envy works in both directions, and we need to kill it in both directions. And it took this surprising turn in Ephesus, because the people being described here were the ones who were preaching poverty and withdrawing from the world, and they were getting rich by doing it. So false teaching usually tends to fixate on things which bring attention, something which stands out, and that's what they were guilty of. That's how they were making their money. And so this also is not a new thing in our own time. What we are called to do, brothers and sisters, is to live the life which is content with what Christ has given us, with the work he has given us, uh, with the means he has provided for us. That is our calling, is to be content, to not be consumed by envy 
one way or the other, but to stay down the middle of the road, working faithfully uh, and being content with the life God has given. God may put us in the position of a master or of a bondservant. He may send us seasons of plenty or seasons of just enough, but all of these seasons come from his hand and they are designed to make us more Christ-like. And so we need to resist the urge to accept the Marxist thinking of our age, which sees oppression and injustice in any kind of difference. We need to delight in the difference, the texture, the distinctions that God has put in his world, and to be content. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you that you have made each of us unique. You have given each of us our own unique history, uh, our own experiences, our own work, uh, and you have re- rewarded us differently with, uh, with what that work has accomplished. Lord, and rather than being resentful of one another or being proud or haughty, Lord, I pray that each one in this room would be uh, overcome with a sense of gratitude, with a sense of humility for what you've blessed us with, that we would not be proud, we would not be envious, but we would see that you have given us exactly what we need to grow in your likeness. Lord, I pray for the holiness of each person here, and I pray that uh, as we tackle our work again in the coming week, that we would do it with gladness, knowing that our work isn't just something to put food on the table, it's not just something to get us to the next weekend. Lord, but our work is your way of caring for your creation, of loving our neighbors well, and I pray that we would see our work in that light, be content with what you have given us, uh, and that we would be noted for having the kind of work ethic that will bring you glory. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The charge is this. Since God separated day and night, land and sea, male and female, he has been showing that he is glorified not only in his physical creation, but also in the distinctions, differences, and textures he has put into that creation. The fall means that instead of seeing God's wisdom in these things, we kick against them. We do this by the open lust of wanting to become rich, by the self-destructive lust of envying what another has, or by the pretend piety of trying to escape the physical world like the false teachers of 1 Timothy. True godliness is humble in riches and grateful in poverty. True piety doesn't destroy itself on the pursuit of money, but rests in the gain of godly contentment, knowing that God loves us enough to give us exactly what we need at all times. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And may you go in peace.